You're listening to Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Jennifer Cody Epstein, author of Wonderland. How did ordinary citizens get to a place where they were able to abide by and even um, collaborate in these just massive atrocities against another human being? You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. You're listening to Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Jennifer Cody Epstein's new book is Wonderland published by Crown Imprint of Penguin Random House. She is the international best-selling author of The Painter of Shanghai, The Gods of Heavenly Punishment. She has written for The Wall Street Journal and numerous publications in the U.S. and Asia. Kirkus Reviews said this about Wonderland. It is a vividly written and stark chronicle of Nazism and its legacies. Joining us by phone from Brooklyn is Jennifer Cody Epstein. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Now, Wonderland is set in Berlin, Germany, and New York City. It spans the years 1933 to 1989. But before we talk about this new novel, Wonderland, I kind of wanted to put a little bit of context for the listeners around the subject matter of World War II and how it relates to your previous work. You've, you've come to this topic before in an earlier novel, The Gods of Heavenly Punishment, and that also kind of examines the pre-war and post-war landscape, but in Japan. But what I'm really curious right. about is what, what pulls you into this period of history? I think it's the same thing that pulls a lot of people into this period of history. It was a time when the world was in very radical change, time when, you know, war was just commonplace pretty much everywhere. And I think that it was a period that was just really filled with incredible narratives, you know, both of good and of evil. And um, I've always found particularly rich subject matter to to explore. And I'm also really fascinated by storylines that we have inherited about good and evil and who were the good guys and who were the bad guys, because, you know, my sense is that in wartime the lines aren't always as clear-cut as um, we are sort of led to believe, and that's been something that I've repeatedly felt drawn to kind of explore and play around with a little bit. Well, one of the things I found fascinating as I started looking into Wonderland, and I, I, I couldn't help but think about the structure of your other novel, The Gods of Heavenly Punishment. The structure was really, has some similarities. You're able to examine the the storylines, good and evil, by looking at the pre-war conditions and the post-war conditions. So why is it important for us to look at the pre-war conditions? Let's let's start with that. Well, I think the pre-war conditions really lay the groundwork for, for how the wars end up happening and for people's actions during that war. Um, in both Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, you had 
very active propaganda cultures um, that from very, very early on, uh, in the case of Japan, the 1920s, if not earlier, were essentially teaching children to believe certain things about their country, about the emperor, about the West, that would effectively make them very uh, pliable pawns, you know, in the war that, that Japan ended up waging both in Asia and, and on the West. And in Germany, it really wasn't that different. Um, you know, they had a very active, um, very complex propaganda campaign and, you know, educational system in place that put, you know, began from a very early age, putting these sort of ideas about what Germany was, what Germany uh, should be, who were who were the productive members of society, who were the parasites or the, you know, the unproductive members of society. These ideas didn't just happen overnight once, you know, Germany invaded Poland. They had actually been very carefully stoked and planted and groomed for about a decade. You take us right into the mindset of what it was like to to exist in Berlin in 1933. But before you ever started to kind of script it out, write it out, I, I read that there was actually uh, a German memoir, kind of a, an obscure memoir that may have served as a kernel of inspiration for the novel. Can you tell us anything about that? Yes. I've known for a long time that I wanted to try to write about this period of history, but I never really had a good sense of a way in to the kinds of storylines that I wanted to explore. And in 2013, my husband came across a New Yorker piece by Helen Epstein, who is a publisher and a, a writer and a journalist. And it was about a memoir called Fatsik, which is translated as Account Rendered. And it was published in 1964 in Germany by a woman who, as a 15-year-old, had joined the Hitler Youth and just become completely swept up in um, the National Socialist Movement, really just bought into the entire promise you know, of National Socialism and along the way got caught up in the hate culture and the propaganda efforts in particular. Her name was Melita Moshman. And the memoir struck me as interesting because it really sort of seemed to be getting at, you know, again, that same question that I'd always had, which was how did ordinary citizens get to a place where they were able to abide by and even um, collaborate in these just massive atrocities against another human being? So I picked it up, and I read it, and I found it every bit as fascinating as the, the New Yorker said it was going to be. You know, it was a story of a very intimate friendship between two young girls in Germany, one of whom, Melita, got very caught up in the Hitler Youth Movement, and the other who discovered at around the same time that under the Nuremberg Law, she was technically considered a Michling because her father had been born to Jewish parents and had actually converted and had never really bothered to say any of this or discuss this with his family because, like, apparently, you know, a number of families, he just hadn't felt that it was particularly important to them. Of course, it was very important to the Nazis, and, and by 1933, family documentation and the history of your ancestry, um, you know, was required. Jennifer, in that description, you used a term that I learned when I was reading the book, and the word is mischling. And mm-hmm. it comes uh, comes into play when Renata is confronted by this terminology when she discovers her background. Can you just take a moment to define what a Michelin meant in that time period so that we can relate it to the story? 
Sure. A Michelining was the Reich's way of classifying people who were not considered 100% Jewish or 100% Aryan. Of course, you know, the, the, the Nazis viewed Judaism as a race as opposed to as a religion, and they saw it, you know, basically as an ethnicity. And so if you had one parent who was Jewish and the other who was not Jewish, they had a series of classifications for precisely how Jewish you were. Um, and Michelin, I think the term technically means mixture. Michelin was somebody who was a mixture of both races, and you could be a Michelin of, you know, one, a first degree or a second degree. I think there might have even been a third degree, depending on, you know, what the details of your ancestry were. So if you had at one grandparent or two grandparents who were Jewish, that was considered different than having um, all four, you know, or three grandparents who were Jewish. And there is a moment in the story when Renata learns that she doesn't meet the racial qualifications to participate in a girls' group. And I'll ask you to um, to say what that is because I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong. But it's the <laughs> it's it's the uh, the BDM group, and then there's uh, another term attached to it. So what? Tell us about that group and what did it mean for a child in Germany who wasn't permitted to join that group. Um, the BDM stands for Bundesdeutsche Mädel. I'm not sure that my pronunciation is really much better than yours. I don't. I did study a little bit of German for this, but I certainly never nailed the language. But it was the girls section of, of the Hitler Youth. You know, you had the Hitler Youth tends to be the one that you see the most in sort of the press and history books. You know, the, the young men in the shorts and the knee socks and the sort of dandy khaki uniforms. So this was the girls' wing, and they had they also had their own uniform which was considered very smart. I think it was like a black beret that you wore and a crisp white shirt and a, a sort of a, a navy skirt. And the organization was structured, as was the Hitler Youth, on sort of the scouting model, which had originally come from uh, Switzerland, I believe. So it was seen as very wholesome and sort of, you know, lots of uh, sort of group building and community building enterprises. There was actually a also a charity aspect to it. They would collect for winter aid for poor families in the, um, on the street. I've got a scene where um, Renata and Elsa are passing a, a young Hitler youth that has a can, and he was collecting money for winter aid for poor families in Germany that needed heat and clothing and food. And, you know, when these organizations first came in, there were, there were a number of them that were built on similar models. Um, there was a socialist group. There was actually a Zionist group as well that I read about, you know, that included lots of sort of camping and outdoor bonding experiences. But under National Socialism, eventually uh, the Hitler Youth and the, the BDM became the only legal available forms of youth groups that children uh, were supposed to be, be joining. The other ones were, were, were actually banned. And you could only join them if you were Aryan. So if you um, discovered, as my character Renata does, and as actually Melita Moshman's friend apparently did, that you're not fully Aryan or, as they would say, fully German, you were excluded from that membership. And I think it depended on where you were, but certainly in many of the scenarios that I read about in my research, this could be absolutely devastating in terms of being excluded. The characters Ilsa and Renata are close friends, really best friends when we meet them in 1933 Berlin. And an aspect that stayed with me after I read the novel was the element of a family's financial circumstances as it relates to Hitler's promise of a new Germany. I'd like you to talk to us about the connection of prosperity and poverty with Hitler's charisma as it comes through in these two characters. Sure. I mean, Hitler had, he rose to power um, 
largely as a result of the economic deprivations that Germany suffered in the wake of World War One. They were being forced to pay um, massive amounts in sort of war funds back to the victorious nations. Uh, France, in particular, had instituted some very punitive measures against them. There was much hunger, you know, soaring unemployment. The government was printing massive amounts of money in an effort to try to pay these war fines and um, as a result, you had hyperinflation. It was a situation where you had literally the money that you would have from your paycheck would be worth less and less almost by the hour in some cases. People were actually burning it you know, to keep themselves warmer for fuel and sometimes giving it to their kids to play with because it literally just bought absolutely nothing. So you know, it was very, very traumatizing financially for many German families. And Hitler stepped into this situation with these very resounding, articulate promises of regained ascendancy and of a, a Germany that took took its rightful place at the lead of Europe as you know it always should have, and he, he backed it up with a lot of measures. And he created the Autobahn. He had got employment sort of back up to levels that it hadn't been at since the war, and people really fell for it. They believed his promises. They desperately needed to believe something positive about their future and Germany's future, and he offered to sort of deliver. Well, the the character Ilsa is truly a complex character, and we know rather early on that there is a draw to everything you just described, everything that Hitler is promising. She's devoted. She wants to join the group. She wants to participate in the building of a new Germany, and there's this wonderful passage. I think it's on page 62 that I wanted to ask you about. Ilsa loves to write. She has aspirations about um, a a writing career in a a sense. And she's written a poem for publication that kind of conveys her devotion to the German cause. And I'm just, it's just a few lines. I'm going to read it. Then I want to ask you about it. It says, the door that leads to the future is found in our young hearts, The fruit that sustains the nation ripens in our sinless souls. Our mission is holy, our will pure and true, our destiny, eternal victory, endless glory. I'd love to know where that came from. Was was it inspired by propaganda poetry of the era? Is this a combination of your own invention, or did you see similar references? Because that kind of seems to sum up what Ilsa was feeling in that in that moment in 1933. Yeah, you know, there, there was, uh, that actually was inspired by actual poetry by the Hitler youth. There was a, a kind of almost pseudo-religious quality to, you know, the type of praise that was, you know, given for Adolf Hitler. And there was a, a lot of poetry that was written, and I'm sure it was, it was encouraged, you know, by the Hitler Youth Administration. I had read that in 1938, there was actually a book that was of, of Hitler Youth poetry that was published I think that the most is some Hitler Youth members in Austria, and it was in the lead up to the Nazi takeover of Austria, um, the Anschluss in 19, um, 1938, and filled with poems just of that of that kind of breathless adoration, tone of which really really struck me. And I actually wrote that one myself after reading you know a number of these poems, but it very much did kind of capture that sense of almost holy devotion that people, children in particular, were sort of encouraged to have for the Fuhrer. And in fact, I was just researching this before uh, before we were speaking, and I hadn't realized this, but Goebbels actually awarded a book of these poems, 
the National Book Prize for 1937-1938 in Germany. That was, you know, that was Germany's National Book Award winner. The whole, again, it was a whole bunch of poems by unknown members of the Hitler Youth in Austria that was, you know, during, written over the course, you know, I'd say of like the, the mid to late 1930s. Oh, that so is very much. It was a real phenomenon. Fascinating. That that is fascinating. Um, Ilsa would have, I think, I feel, have done well in that competition. Um, <laughs> and you know, along along the lines of of Ilsa, there are scenes with Ilsa and Renata. They they slip into these alter egos, and I wanted to ask you about this because it's such a it's such a brilliant literary technique that's used throughout the novel. They slip into alter egos when they're young. They use little different names when they're being kind of mischievous, just doing kid kind of things. And it's so clever because later in the story, Ilsa still will employ that alter ego when she's struggling with her conscience. And can you talk just a bit about when you were creating Ilsa, who was absolutely complying with Hitler's directives, but she, she did still have those moments of doubt. That idea came a little bit later. I think as I was having her get caught up in particular, there's a, a two scenes actually of Kristallnacht, and you know, one's from Renata's perspective as a Jew, and one's from Elsa's um, perspective as a as a Hitler Youth member. And you know, I think that was you know, she's been throughout this process of sort of slipping deeper and deeper into sort of the national socialist vision heat fever. She is constantly rationalizing to herself. She's constantly telling herself, well. Yes, it's terrible what's happening to the Jews, but they've brought this on themselves. Or, yes, I feel terrible that I have to betray my best friend or leave my best friend in the hallway and not speak to her, but it's for the good of the country. And it made me think about, you know, the ways that we sort of tend to compartmentalize our behavior and our own actions. And I happened to be doing some research at the time, and I realized that Jekyll and Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the movie, had come out around this time, and it would have likely been playing, and, you know, Ilsa and um, Renata would probably have seen it because, you know, people love seeing movies. And the idea of this sort of, these sort of polarly opposite personalities really sort of captured my imagination because it seemed to play so well into the story's theme. So I did. I came up with, you know, the idea that they both had these alter egos that were just utterly monstrous, like Mr. Hyde. And in the beginning, it's very silly. I mean, they, they have discussions, you know, when they're still close friends about, you know, the terrible things that their alter egos did. And, you know, Renata eats a dachshund puppy for lunch. Ilsa steals the number three bus and drives it to Paris. And as the friendship falls apart and as Renata's and Ilsa's lives become more and more polarized, I felt that that was an interesting way to kind of have Ilsa be talking to herself about her own actions, you know, and trying to sort of rationalize them, sort of saying, you know, this is this is another person. This is not, this is a different person. It's not me that's actually responsible, you know, for these things that I'm actually doing. So I think many people wonder if a young person indoctrinated into Nazism can change later in life. And in the novel, Ilsa is an ardent follower of Hitler. We we know that throughout the story, but it's through the character of her daughter, Ava, who is woven beautifully throughout the novel, really. And I think this is one of the reasons that your book got such glowing reviews. We are able, through all of the characters, to examine the kind of moral residue of Nazism decades later. So my question is, after living with these characters for a few years, what is your impression of finding perspective as the years pass? 
I think that it's something that it varies by person, obviously, and also by culture. As we discussed, I explored uh, some very similar themes in my second novel, The Gods of Heavenly Punishment, and that came from my experience living in Japan for about five years and never being able to really wrap my head around the stories that I'd heard about Japan's uh, role during World War II and particular the atrocities that were committed by Japanese, the Japanese military in Southeast Asia and China in particular, um, and the people that I lived with. You know, I think that when I looked at Germany, my sense going in was that um, as a country, it had, been, had done a much more direct and, I think, open job of trying to embrace its wartime past. I wasn't sure whether that was actually the case on a personal level or not. And, you know, my research basically showed that, again, it really it really did sort of depend very much on the person. You know, I've read a lot of oral accounts where people sort of pay lip service to having come to terms with their actions, but would then go on in these interviews that, that they were in to um, say things that kind of belied that, you know, and, and showed that some of the stereotypes and the you know, the mentalities that had sort of led to, you know, the the Holocaust were, were still disturbingly sort of present and alive. But other people like, you know, Melita Moshman, you know, really made an effort to try to, you know, successfully or, or not successfully embrace what they had done and really analyze it and learn from it. I think in Ava's character, you know, I the other aspect of that process that I was really interested in was the next generation, people that were born in the wake of the war were born into this horrible legacy that they'd had absolutely no personal hand in, but were largely sort of given the blame for anyway. And her character is somebody who who definitely experiences that. She grows up with a very chilling and determined silence on her mother's part. Her mother has no interest in discussing the war, has no interest in talking about what she did during the war, to the extent that, you know, Ava doesn't even learn about the camp until... She is at school one day, and they bring her class down to the auditorium, and they're actually shown the documentary Night and Fog, which is, you know, horrifyingly graphic documentary about the, you know, what they discovered at Auschwitz. And, you know, this actually happened, that there were, um, you know, I read many accounts of, of people who found out about the Holocaust from other people in other countries. One woman I read had actually gone on a date with a Jewish American, and, you know, when he first told her, about it. She thought he was playing some kind of a joke on her. You know, other people learned about it in school and, and were basically just given the rough outlines of it. And, you know, they were the ones that sort of also had to try to come to terms with what Germany had done. In many ways, I think, are, are still continuing to come to terms with it. You know, I think, for my part, coming away from, from the experience of writing this, I'm not sure whether it's possible to take away any sort of large sweeping lessons other than history is very present in our current lives. The novel is Wonderland, uh, and I want to remind everyone we're talking to the author Jennifer Cody Epstein. Wonderland is published by the Crown imprint of Penguin Random House. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, I am, I'm working on a novel that is set in France now. It's turn of the century, sort of 19th century, late 19th century, and exploring a sort of little-known chapter in psychiatric and feminist history that took place with uh, the Salpetriere Asylum, which was the largest women's asylum in Europe and, and possibly at one point in the world. It was in Paris and was run by a man named Jean-Martin Charcot, who had 
very interesting relationship um, with a lot of the women within within that asylum, in particular with the women that were suffering from hysteria. Oh, wow. We'll look forward to that. You really do find some interesting avenues into these, these, <laughs> into these topics. I don't know how I get myself in there, but I seem to, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and so I have a last question for you. It's a question we ask of all our guests, and I'm particularly fascinated by what you might say because you're always finding these obscure Kafka quotes. And I'd yes. like you to tell us, I'd like you to tell us about a book that you love to recommend that no one has ever, ever, ever heard of. You know, I had a couple thoughts on this one, and the one that I ended up with was actually a book that I read for my last novel. It was a memoir by a a journalist named Helen Mears, who was living in Japan in the 1930s, just as uh, Japan was kind of ramping up its own sort of fascist movement. And she wrote a memoir called The Year of the Wild Boar, an American Woman in Japan. And I found it absolutely fascinating because she sort of had this ringside seat to the fascist passion that was building up in in um, Japan at the time, and she had some amazing observations about it. And some of the characters that she actually encounters made their way in slightly you know, altered form uh, into the Gods of Heavenly Punishment. So I was actually very grateful to have discovered the book for that, because it kind of gave me some context for some of the, the, um, the issues that I was trying to figure out for some of the people that I was writing about. That's a great recommendation. Well, the book, again, is Wonderland by Jennifer Cody Epstein. It's published by Crown Imprint of Penguin Random House. And uh, Jennifer, can you tell us where we can learn more about you and the upcoming events that you have scheduled? Sure. You can look at my website, www.jennifercodyepstein.com. I have an events page there and pages that are about my biography and uh, about my books and a couple blogs and my different writings on it. So that would probably be a good place to start. Good. Thank you. The book is Wonderland. Thank you so much for coming to the program. And Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7, streaming on WERA.FM. And you can find us at realfictionradio.com.